Good morning, my Figgy listeners and my Figgy goddesses. Welcome to the My Figgy Life podcast. Today, I have a very special guest, and I'm so glad he's joining the podcast. It is the one and the only Hoff, which is none other than my hubby. And I'm so glad that he's going to join us today for our talk about what it's like to live with somebody with panic disorder, what it's like for the support system, what they go through and tips and tricks and advice for that. But let me just introduce him to you a little bit. So Hoff has been in the IT professional industry for 18 years. In 2017, he founded BioRugged, a company offering rugged hardware biometric solutions. An extraordinary visionary, Hoff has designed, created, and supplied some of the world's most unique rugged biometric kits, handhelds, and other devices. In a matter of three years, Hoff managed to not only put BioRugged on the map, but to elevate it to one of the top global suppliers and creators of rugged hardware solutions. He works and continues to work with key global players in the public administration, government, and private sectors. He's well-respected in the industry and continues to rise above competitors in the field due to his one-of-a-kind designs and solutions. All of this, and in his spare time, he's an extremely hands-on father to our five-year-old little girl and focuses his energies into being the best parent he can be. He is my cheerleader, my support system, and my rock. If marriage could be Hoff's second career, he would excel at it. And if it could be quantified, he would be a billionaire in this industry. So welcome to the My Figgy Life podcast, Hoff. Hey, Sam. Thank you so much for having me and uh, for the glowing introduction. I hope that we have a, at least an informative session. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm sure it will be because we have for sure spoken about this in our private lives enough to hopefully make it an informative little session for our guests. So first, before we continue, let's welcome our guests to the podcast properly and we'll see you again in a few seconds. Welcome, goddess, to your sacred space. This is My Figgy Life podcast, where we openly discuss life's wins and losses on our journeys to self-discovery. This is your best life. This is your Figgy Life. And now, here is your host, Jean. If you are a Figgy goddess, and if you've been on this platform before, and you know a little bit about the Figgy story, you know that I was diagnosed with panic disorder in 2015 after struggling with some kind of anxiety issue for most of my life. And I told you a little bit about my story and the first panic attack I had and how that happened. And if you're not sure about that, please check out that episode. It's the birth of Figgy. And I will link it for you in the description below. I just really go through the entire experience and what that felt like to me. But just as a background reminder, I was on a work trip alone in a hotel room. And I had basically my first panic attack. I was not able to communicate or contact Hall or get in touch with him. So with many things going on, again, that you can listen to in the Birth of Figgy episode, they eventually, the hospital eventually managed to contact Hoff. And as always, he left everything and flew right over to come and assist me. I talk about the panic disorder a lot. 
and how it affects my life, because I think it's really important for us to understand that we all have things that we struggle with, but many people just don't talk about it, which makes a lot of us feel not only like failures, but like there is extra pressure. And that's not what Figi is about. However, there's also the support system, the people on the sidelines that are rooting us on, that are our cheerleaders, and that also witness us going through these things. And Sometimes there can also be some kind of secondary trauma in relation to seeing this and living with this. And I think what we can definitely say, Hov, is the first few weeks after Durban were not the easiest of times. I think what the big thing is in the beginning of anything that you went through is the unknown, that you don't know what's going on because... You, uh, you see five doctors and you see three specialists and out of the eight of them, they've got six different opinions. One is like, it's a gut problem. One is like, it's a brain problem. One is like, you have MS. The other one is like, no, you might have epilepsy. And all of this adds to your, not only to you, Jen, but also to the family's anxiety level because men likes to fix things. We like to, if there's a problem, there's a solution. It might not always be the right solution, but we sure as hell are going to implement a solution <laughs> to try and <laughs> fix it. <laughs> when you hear all these guys that is highly learned and you trust in them to help you figure out what's going on. And there's various opinions and you're racing from city to city to hospital to hospital, trying to find out what happened, you know, what's going on. And then you have this level of additional anxiety, not only in the family from a husband's perspective that's worried about his spouse, but also from, I'm pretty sure from your perspective where the uncertainty brings more triggers that causes panic. That's very, very true. And I mean, the first day I remember when you walked into the hospital the next morning, I was still a little bit confused, but I, for some reason, I was not surprised at all that you managed to get there. I didn't even want to know how or when. I was just happy that you were there. I know what I felt like. I had felt like I had literally almost died the night before. But what was that like to you having to receive that phone call? And you're not also, you're not sure what's happening with me because I can't speak to you. And I think that's also where we learned the lesson to be better in our communication of where one is staying when you're traveling <laughs> and what your plans are just to make crisis moments a little bit easier. But yeah, what can you just take us a little bit through your perspective and your side of things and what your experience was with that morning and having to get on that flight and, you know, having to come and get me? Well, I think you know me better than most of your listeners, but I still remember it well. We were outside having a, well, we, I was sitting outside having a bride by myself. And late at night, I got a call and it's like, no, it's a hospital. It's feeding your wife. It's like, yes, it is. It's like, she's in hospital. I'm like, why? They're like, no, they don't know. It's like, is she okay? It's like, no, she's okay, but we don't know what's going on. It's like, okay, fine. Um, they're like, should I come fetch her? They're like, yeah, you should come fetch her. I was like, okay. So I checked flights online and the earliest one I could get was I think at 5 or 4 30 a.m. So got on a flight and went there. But me as a person don't really if there's nothing that you can really do about a stressful situation, yes you're worried, but what does it help to run around in circles? It's rather to first get all the facts and once you have the facts, stress out. <laughs> but before you have the facts, it's just some 
another thing that needs to get done. So got on the plane, flew to you, found the hospital, found you. And it's like, what's going on? And you're like, I don't know. It's like, ask the doctor. And he's like, she had some panic, take some tablets, you'll be fine. We're like, no, we don't think that's panic. You won't collapse from panic. You're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so it was more of like, no, this is a stupid hospital. This is a dumb situation. It can't be that. This is impossible. Let's get on the plane and go home. Yeah. I mean, this is part of why I think I find such amazing support in you because you have this amazing sense of calmness in even the worst of situations. I know that you also feel a part of the stress and you also carry it with you. But, you know, especially when you're dealing with a panic disorder, it's really, no, it's not difficult. It's impossible to be logical because... The, it's like the logical part of your brain just completely stops functioning. So to have somebody like you that is so measured and calm and thinks about everything so logically is really an amazing help. And I remember it was to me, even when we came out of the hospital, we had to go back to the hotel to go and retrieve all my things so we could get on the plane. And I remember you said to me that the hotel room looks like a crime scene because literally everything that I had been, like my dinner, my workout I was doing the previous, everything was just left as is, you know? And I was really freaking out in that moment. And that calm consistency that you brought to the situation was something that I really, really needed. I think it's more than, um, it's not calm consistency after you've been married for, but it's more like you become more in tune with what your partner needs. And if they need somebody to be a hammer and go sort out auto repair shop, you do that. And if they need somebody to be a rock so they can stand on you, you do that because on the very next day, you need something again, and they bend over backwards for you. So to be calm in a stressful situation is not always, I think, something you think about consciously. It's more something that needs to be done. And if it needs to be done, you get it done. What I've seen also with panic is panic is a thing you go through alone. It's like, yes, you can have a support structure and you can have people you depend on and you can have people that try and, and break the triggers that surround you. But panic is a thing you go through alone. It's you mm. that's experiencing it. And being, even back then, just being the calmness or not causing any additional uh, situations that can trigger, I think is more of a way you and I are in tuned in life. Like you kind of detect what the other person need and you do that. For sure. And I think what happened next was we basically actually just went back to life as we know it, because I think both of us were a little bit in shock. And I think our kind of approach to it was like, okay, this was a super weird event. Let's just file it away and, and get back to what we do well and our lives. And I remember we still said, well, let's not worry about it too much because in two days time, we're going away and we're taking a break for your birthday. And then we're going to chill out and we're going to relax and we're going to get into a good equilibrium again. And this is all going to be kind of part of the past. And we went on this holiday at the most beautiful place. It's so remote. I mean, to get there you really do need a four by four, which we did not have. So getting in and out was like an issue by itself. 
but a gorgeous place filled with nature, filled with trees and lakes and horses. By that you horses. mean a small house in the middle of a forest. Yes. <laughs> yes, 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 exactly that. But then unfortunately what happened is that not only did I have the panic attack again, I had it so much worse and it was continuous. I was for that entire time we were there in a continuous state of almost utter panic. And I think that's the first time where you in person witnessed what had happened to me the night in the hospital. Obviously, I can describe how it feels like to me. But I mean, what does that translate to for somebody perhaps dealing with a loved one that also has this, like, what did you see and experience when I was, I don't know how to else say it, freaking out, because that's basically what it is. There, <laughs> nothing except the freak out exists. Well, I don't think it's a freak out. I think it's more like you turn a corner and you suddenly see a ghost and your legs just give away under you and you kind of fall on the floor and it's like, oh, I'm so scared of this ghost. I'm shaking. I know it's not a real ghost, but uh, I saw it and I fell down and I'm <laughs> on the floor <laughs> shaking. It's, it's of course a scary situation, but it's it's a scary situation that comes from not knowing why it's happening. Like, so you get scared because you don't understand what's going on to somebody that you love. <clears throat> so that's the, the biggest part of the not knowing. The uncertainty is like, is something wrong in her brain? Does she have some disease? You know? And then the immediate next thought is, let's go to a hospital and get medicine. And then you go to another doctor, because we left that one day to go to the hospital in the small town, emergency room in the small town. And there we went through the whole thing again. And I have to say that doctor as well went like, I think you're getting panic, panic attacks, put a little tablet under your tongue or something. And we were still in denial. Like, this can't be panic. Panic can't be this bad. This <laughs> is something... I'm not saying panic isn't a serious condition. I'm saying like, this is serious. Like we have to get injections and we have to get scans done and we have to go to machines to see what's wrong inside. So the denial part of that, and even between you and me both talking like what's going on, what's happening, that uncertainty brings fear because the unknowing and the uncertainty breeds fear and free fear. I'm afraid breeds panic. For sure. And I think a, a large part of that also is the guilt that comes with that because the fear and the guilt, because I remember when we came home from the, the emergency room that time, it's like I couldn't get my panic back under control, that I was at a heightened level of panic for that entire trip. And I remember so many times crying and asking you, am I ever going to be normal again? Is this ever going to go away? Is this going to be my life now? And, you know, you are such a support system to me. But with that also comes the guilt, because even now it's so many years later, and I still feel unbelievably guilty for ruining that trip for it was your birthday. It was supposed to be something fun that we did together. It was supposed for us to be a break and for us to calm down. And instead we spent like half the time rushing to the emergency room. The other half of the time I was there in body, but definitely not in spirit because I was just for me trying to breathe and to not be so panicked 
And it puts a lot of extra stress on you because you can see how it affects your loved ones, but you also feel so guilty for having to put that on them and having to put them in this situation. Having panic or panic disorder or so forth is becomes a part of life. And it's something that just happens. Probably it's like somebody that has to rest that suddenly bursts out and says a bunch of, bunch of swear words. It's not their fault. It's not they can control it. It's panic becomes a thing where the spouse, I definitely feel after a couple of years, gets numb to it. Where it's like, okay, panic is going to happen now. I see it. Here's a hug. Everything is okay. You work through it. If you need anything, a cup of tea, or I have to make dinner, or fetch the kid, or so forth, just let me know. Because from an outside perspective, it's literally just somebody sitting very still on a chair, or having a little vibration in the fingers, or the eye is twitching a bit. And it's like, okay. And then from a family perspective, having a child as well, it's like, is mommy tired? It's like, yeah, mommy's just relaxing a bit, honey. You know, she had a long day. She's relaxing. <laughs> Don't worry about it. She'll be with us again soon. And it's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Mommy's just relaxing. And the child, uh, Lily picked up on that as well, because she'll come back from work, uh, from work, from school, and go like, no, no, I just want to relax a bit by myself. And she goes sit in her room with her eyes closed, just staring like into nothingness for five minutes. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm all relaxed now. <laughs> Let's draw. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's so true. But it's so true how you see it, though, because, um, and it's interesting to hear it from an outside perspective, because that's definitely not how it feels. To me, it feels like there's a literal storm raging inside of me. And like, there's this ocean of sounds in my mind that I cannot separate the thoughts from one another that I'm completely falling over an edge so what it looks like I think it's what you said it's a very solitary thing to go through because it's all happening inside you and it's so difficult to explain that to somebody because you're also dealing with this fear of people thinking that you're going crazy so you don't want to say anything because you don't want to have people think you're nuts <laughs> No, but there's various levels of it. You know, in the beginning, it was much worse. You were like kind of freaking out. You were like asking questions. You were shaking. You can't speak. You can't open your purse. And with the years that, as the years roll by, you also yeah. learn how to manage it. I know it's very difficult to listen to your own body, especially if you have a podcast due or you have a website that's launching soon due or so forth but most of the time you or when you can you also listen to your own body and you're like oh i can feel a migraine coming i can feel this coming and it's like okay and you go if you have any medical assistance or you need it you take it and you go sit on the bed or go sit on your favorite couch in the sun and wait for and do your processes i'm pretty sure you've probably spoken about the various processes and steps and so on you go through your steps and this is like getting a migraine or a headache. Everybody knows when it, the onset of the migraine headache, you take a paracetamol or ibuprofen or whatever your drug of choice is, because to manage it in the beginning is much easier than to manage it once it's raging. That's true. And you've been just calling me out on all of my nonsense again this co last couple of weeks. <laughs> I saw you just putting that one in there. <laughs> 
That's what husbands is for, to keep you <laughs> yeah, <laughs> grounded. <for sure. laughs> so I think the one thing that I can say I'm super grateful for is Henny, because Henny, just for my listeners, again, he was also on this podcast. I will link to his episode in the description below. He was my treating psychologist when I was first diagnosed. And I really think he got me or he was really with us through the worst of it, through the worst phase of it. And one of the things, the key things that he said, and also again, repeated on my podcast was that the thing about panic disorder is that it changes the person's behavior. You start going through a lot of behavioral changes in order to avoid having a panic attack again. And I did a lot of that in the initial stages. I, I stopped exercising. I didn't want to leave the house. I didn't want to go anywhere without you. There was a period where you couldn't go to work because I could not be alone because I was afraid if I was alone it was going to happen again. I couldn't eat because I was afraid of this choking sensation I had. For maybe some listeners that have loved ones or who themselves are going through that stages, as a support network, is there any advice that you can give them through those stages? Or how did you cope through that stage, having to see me go through this and kind of having to coach me back into almost like a normal space of life again? Because it took a couple of weeks for sure. Well, step one is learn how to make very good tea. It's like once you got the tea down, <laughs> everything else is much easier. It's like, are you feeling like some tea? <laughs> it's like, no, I don't want tea. I'm panicking. It's like, okay, but tea. <laughs> the biggest thing is from panic as well, what I've seen is to break the cycle. Because you go, as you said, now you go into your head into the storm and inside you, the storm is raging and... The raging storm causes the hamster wheel. We just start spinning in place. So breaking the wheel, breaking the, the cycle is the most, I think in the beginning stage is the most important, but it's like, no, you're not choking. No, it's not. I can physically see your throat. You are not choking. It's like, you can breathe. I can see your chest moving. This is all in your head. Don't ever say that to somebody having a, pa a panic attack, though. <laughs> in that moment, don't tell them it's just in your head. <laughs> no, this is internal thoughts. Internal. Mm. Yeah, but, but I say, that's why I said it's not, it's in your head, but it's something happening to you. You know, it's not something you are causing. Your brain or your psyche or whatever, what is out of balance is causing this to you. And you have to break that cycle. This is an internal thing and you have to have the mental fortitude in place to get out of the cycle. Otherwise, as you said, you'll stop leaving the house, stop exercising, stop eating right. Yeah. And that still happens to me, actually. I, I mean, even if we take it now, you know, you're going to on a work trip to France and I was talking about taking Lily away for that's a little girl away for a, a night and I have been having a little bit of panic relapses the last couple of weeks. And, and it's something that comes so natural, that immediate change in your behavior. Because I, I think even last night, still, I was telling you, I don't want to go away. I don't want to be away from the house. I don't want to be in a strange place. So what you're saying about getting back into it is super, super important. Yeah, but there's also not one solution that fits everyone. Like we've seen with some of the books we've read or the people you've seen, 
what works for me won't work for you. What works for you won't work for Sarah or Mary or John or Peter. Knowing what to do, like logically the steps, it's like, listen, I'm feeling panicky. Okay, so I should not force myself to go out of the house the first week. I should exercise. I should only eat chocolate in the evenings and drink wine in the afternoons. <laughs> <laughs> if that's your cycle, your steps to get through it, do it. You know, don't break routine because panic is a, is, is a steps that happens. You very rarely will sit on the chair and go from, oh, I'm calm and relaxed. Oh, I'm on the floor crying. It takes time. It's a build up. It's a build up. And sometimes it's a couple of days where like, oh, my hands are numb. Oh, my head's a bit sore. Oh, it's um, seeing the steps, seeing the signs, realizing what's happening during the panic attack, knowing, although it's very difficult, knowing what to do, although that you are not doing it or unable to do it, and then just focusing on it. And when it's finished, following the routine to get back on your feet over and over and over. It's not an easy fix. And that's the same from a spouse's perspective. This happens again and again and again and again. It's not can't take a tablet and it's away, it went away tomorrow. You have to do the same thing also each time. It's not a big thing. It's not a big, don't worry about it. Life continues. Yes, your hug. Yes, your tea. <laughs> okay. So tomorrow we have to take, <laughs> tomorrow we have to take Lily to school and I can't do it. You'll have to do it. Yeah. And the thing also is in the beginning, you had to travel with me a lot. And again, this just shows the amazing support system you were to me because you didn't even think about it. You just, and I know we all have stressful times at work, but this, during this time, specific time, when it started happening to me at first, you were having an extraordinary stressful time and busy time at work. And you just made the space to travel with me because I had so many travel commitments and to be there for me and to help me through this. Do you have any maybe advice for other loved ones that may be going through this same situation? They also have their own work stress. Life continues and it goes on. But now you have for this time being this loved one that's so reliant on you. I was definitely trying my best to sort through it, but it wasn't a magic fix. I needed you a lot more than than I, you know, usually do. How did you deal with that different forms of stress and trying to keep together all the stress that you were having on your own with your job and how you were dealing with the diagnosis and then having to travel with me and trying to keep me, you know, in a sane, logical space? Well, the first and most important is you have to be diagnosed correctly. Once this sets in, you have to find and you suspect or think it could be panic related, find a panic specialist. Don't go to any backroom shrink or psychiatrist and speak to them. Find somebody that's got real experience in this, get diagnosed properly. And they normally have plans like a starter pack plan. And if you are a loved one and a spouse, and as we spoke about, you take the uncertainty away. Here's the plan, what needs to happen. Then, as I always say, is you always have time for the things you make time for. If your spouse and so is an important part of your life, you'll make the time and you work around it. Now you have a plan, you're probably diagnosed, it's structured, and you have to talk about it, of course. And then after talking about it and you have a plan, you make a plan together. Listen, Monday morning is this, Tuesday afternoon is this, 
Thursday night I have to go for a client meeting. Communication is incredibly key, but communication without a plan and a proper knowing what's going on becomes just talking in circles. So you have the facts, you have the diagnosis, you have the timelines, and then you make a plan together that both are on the same page all the time. I know one of the of the couple might fall off the page every now and again, but that's okay. You turn to the new page and you continue your life. Yeah, but Hof, how do you do it? Because like I said, you had so much stress in your own work life at that moment. How did you separate those two stressors? Because you didn't stop climbing that ladder and succeeding. You made an amazing success of your company, you know, but how did you do it? How did you separate those really two super stressful things and still make both of them work? Okay, so step one is make sure your most of your spouse's meetings are in nice coastal towns with good beaches. <laughs> and then it's much easier to travel with her. <laughs> step two is not to think about it. It's something that needs to be done. It's like the more you think about the amount of work or the amount of struggle or mission or mountains that's in front of you, the more you pre-stress. So you're stressing about things that hasn't happened yet. So you're worrying about mountains you haven't reached yet. And there's no point in that. I know what I'm saying is many times impossible, but live in the moment. Today, she needs your help. Today, today he needs your help. Tomorrow I have to do this, tonight I have to do that. Sleep schedules and weekends needs to be planned. You know, once you get to a certain level of success in your life, you plan for a certain levels of success, not only in your relationship and your spouse, weekends and nights, it just becomes part of your day. It's not a, your relaxing time is planned. It's not like nobody owes you a weekend. You don't owe yourself a weekend. You own, you owe yourself relaxing holiday time and plan it. And when you work, work, when you stress, stress, when you climb a mountain, climb a mountain, and when you play, play, don't worry about the other things while you're doing something else. Oh, solid advice. You should really give me some of that advice from time to time. <laughs> All the times you tell me that I, I will, I'm going to record it and play it back to myself. It's coming out in my new book. It's coming out <laughs> in my new book, uh, Q2 next year, how to not stress about the mountain tomorrow, $9.99 at Walmart. Okay, awesome. We'll put it, we'll put it in the description. <laughs> this leads us to another, I think, super important part of this. And I think a big part of how I got to, let's call it a quality life, highly functioning life again, was the fact that I was so lucky to have a great support system in you. But one of the things that you also just, you didn't even bat an eye, you were just completely open to it, is coming with me to my psychologist. And it helped us a lot because you were extremely interested in also asking him, how can you support me? How can you help me? How can you understand what is happening to me or what the triggers are? Unfortunately, a lot of men are very closed off to this kind of intervention. I mean, you obviously understood it wasn't about you, but not a lot of men will see it that way. You know, many people will see it as, no, I'm not going to a shrink. I don't need, nothing's wrong with me. I don't need to speak to the psychologist. What advice would you give other men in your situation 
especially in terms of how important it is for you as the support system to be on board with the support plan? The step one of that was, um, as we said, we took a long time to understand what was going on. And once we understood what was going on, we needed a solution, a fix. And what, as you said, what Henny said was, in the beginning, it's a two-phase approach. And the one is getting the right medication to balance out your life. As if you're in a state of panic, you can't move forwards, only backwards. So let's reduce that for now in the proper medical way. And step two is for long-term health, you need to exercise your brain. And exercising your brain for to handle, understand, absorb, manage different situations is not something if you have a partner you can do alone. Because although you go through your panic alone in your head, you go through life with somebody else. To understand the situation in a spousal reason, it's like, oh, my wife's unhappy. Immediately, I'm less happy. So... How do I become more happy? Because if I'm more happy and she's more happy, life is much better. So to understand this and manage this and climb the mountain tomorrow, the only way to really know what's going on is to go with you to these people. And I went a couple of times and sometimes, you know, it's better to hear the same advice from two different people, the one in your house and the one outside just sinks in better sometimes the second the second time. So it's a journey you walk together and um, one can't know and experience the whole journey alone. The other one will fall to the wayside. Yeah, for sure. Wow, that's really good advice. And I, I really hope that it helps a lot of people that are in the support role and that have loved ones that are dealing with this or any other type of illness or maybe mental illness that needs a lot of support because I think this is such an important way to see it, an important part of the recovery, which brings me to just the last section of our chat today, and that is the road to recovery. And unfortunately, as you said in the beginning, panic disorder, it's a living, breathing thing. You know, it, you do get better at managing it, although I do still suck at it sometimes. Uh, <laughs> but it's not going away. You know, it's, it's part of who I am. It's part of my DNA. And I think sometimes that, especially in the beginning, the recovery journey was actually more difficult than the actual finding out and the diagnosis, because we started to see and to learn how much real negative stigma there is around this and how little really true, true, true understanding people have of what panic disorder is. It's not just stress. <laughs> it's not just stress. My favorite one was the people that went like, "Ah, you know, just think yourself better. You, th you thought yourself into this. So just think yourself better again. It's easy. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that one. And I think the one that I struggled with the most by far was the medication. I really kicked my heels in with this one. I did not want to take the medication. I, as you know, I'm still, even now, so many years on at a very uneasy piece with my medication. But can you tell us again, from your perspective, a little bit what it does to, yes, your loved one, but also to you as the support network going through this with them, when you have people saying things like, oh, but why are you taking this medication? And I've never had to take medication to help me with stress or with sleeping or with I think it's so important for people to understand what you do, not just to the person going through the panic disorder, but the loved ones that are 
holding the candles for them and trying to help them get through this? Well, the first of, just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. You know, and if you think about it, most diseases you have, you can see. You can do a scan, you can get a blood test, you know, you can physically lose a limb and you can see that's what's wrong. Where mental diseases you cannot see. And as we've mentioned this, every brain works differently. Every emotion, every psyche, every spirit is vastly different from person to person. So if you have a million spiritual points in your life and three is out of balance for person one, you fall into some depression or panic or so forth. And for other people, if it's 500,000 out of a million that has to fall out of balance. Because we are not the same, we can never judge somebody else for what you can see and experience. You have to listen to that person and listen to their experience and their feelings and then decide what you think is nonsense and, and what is true. To put it easily, it's like if you lose a limb, if you lost your left leg below the knee, nobody will think twice of you taking pain medication, you going for therapy because you still felt you had a ghost limb, you going for um, rehabilitation to learn to walk with a prosthetic, you getting a prosthetic leg, everyone will support you and go like, you know, you're so strong. You know, you went through this tough thing. We can see your legs gone. Good job on taking the right medicines. Good job on going to a psychiatrist about your ghost limb feeling you still have. Excellent work on all the rehabilitation and getting a limb done and going out in public. You're so brave. What do they say these days? <laughs> You're so brave for going out in public with your limb and walking. But when it's a mental thing you can't see, and first of all, none of us have time for anyone else anymore. You don't take the time to realize what's happening in this guy's spiritual points. You don't know what he's going through, but you're very easy to judge. And, oh, you've got three things out of whack and you have panic. Oh, you're a sissy, you know, oh, you're weak. Um, so without understanding, judging, we've all become very hypocritical of mental diseases or mental yeah, mental illness. It's, it is what it is. Even now, when we're talking about it, you feel strange to say the word mental illness, but it, you have to call a spade a spade. That's what it is. If you lose a limb and you're taking pain or antibiotics for it, having a mental imbalance or mental illness and using prescribed right medication on the lowest dose possible. I think it's a great helper, especially in the beginning, mm. just to become, go back onto your equilibrium because you can't heal if you're not in equilibrium. Yeah, I know for sure. And I think another part of the recovery journey is having a plan. Obviously in the beginning, it's difficult because you don't know how this person's panic disorder or attack manifests. But we actually got to a point where we got so fed up and so demotivated and so frustrated with people that had seemingly all of the advice for us, right? And all of that advice always boiled down to, oh, it's just stress. You know, you're, you've always been such a sensitive person, just stress less. You have to learn how to stress less. <laughs> yes, stress less, you know, and we actually came up with code words to signal to each other when a situation is going into the extreme. So when we are having a conversation and I will tell you I'm stressed, we both know that's, oh, normal everyday life. 
I'm stressed about this work situation. Tomorrow, when the situation is cleared up, the stress will also go away. But when I say I have anxiety, then it's a code for both of us to know, okay, I've passed the point of normal stress and I'm kind of going into the danger zone now. I'm not there yet. I'm not like full-fledged attack, but but I'm getting there. And then obviously when I say, okay, panic, then it's like, oh, chips are off the table. Now we're in the thick of it, like meditation, everything else out of the window. Now we just have to get through it. And I don't know if that helps you at all as the person that is the support system when this happens, but it feels to me like it helped us a lot to better communicate to each other where I'm at and also for you to understand, okay, you know, it's not just that I went from being absolutely normal to a full freak out. Like, well, that falls back on the communication. You have to talk about it. You have to, especially in the beginning where the spousal partner doesn't know what to look for yet. As the years go by, you kind of see what's happening. You can see the changes and, and so forth. And building on that, once you start seeing the changes happening, you must also, the person suffering the panic must also be able to listen. If you see, oh, we're in a place now with what lots of lights or flashing or, or sounds or loud noises, everything or lots of people or so forth. And you can see your partner starting to spiral. You must also like, listen, we have to go right now. I'm feeling sick or my head's sore or my foot's sore or whatever. And I can see you're not feeling well. Let's go. So this is definitely a bi-directional thing where the partner needs to be vigilant and understanding and the person going through the panic has to communicate and understand. So understanding from both sides of the coin here is, the, is a very important part. So one doesn't get angry or what's it, frustrated with the other. And then acceptance, you know, it's like, I understand it. I accept it. Let's turn the page. Tomorrow is a new day. That's very important. That acceptance part, because it really helps the person going through it to at least try to get a, rid of just a little bit of the guilt that comes with that. So is there any advice that you can perhaps give to our listeners if they have a loved one going through a panic attack? They're in the thick of it. They see the loved one going through the panic attack. How can they handle that? Because we know that a lot of people's first response is to leave the situation because they literally are also traumatized and they don't know what to do. So they think if I just leave this person to their own devices, when I come back, it will be better. Or they start saying things like, uh, you're being irrational or illogical or thinking that that helps. So what in your experience has worked when I'm like really in the middle of a panic attack to kind of calm me down? Well, the first thing that always works the best is if I look you straight in the eyes and I tell you just to calm down. Yeah, That's no, that is the, definitely the no. You're failing the test. <laughs> I'm, I'm literally ticking all of the, all of the marks that you're getting wrong. <laughs> <laughs> No, this comes down to pre-communication as again, there's no mm -hmm. one solution fits everybody. You and your partner needs to talk about it. And it's like, listen, you've gone through one or two or 20 or hundred of these things. What works for you? What do you want me to do? Because I'm pretty sure there's some people that just wants to be left alone in a dark room 
watching Grey's Anatomy. And there's other people that want you to sit there, hold their hand, do mm. the exercises with them, you know, in a soft voice, speak to them. It's like, listen. And there's people that want a more firm hand that goes like, listen, stop it. I can see it. Mm. I can see what you're doing. Stop it. Get out of the cycle. Let's mm. do an exercise set, exercise time. And different strokes for different folks, you know, and, and communication before it happens. And then also growing conversation. If you feel, listen, this is now, it's too much or too little, we have to either escalate or de-escalate yeah. what you do when this happens. Because I don't know, when you see somebody sitting in a chair with trembling fingers. Yeah, of course. And then when the like breathing difficulty starts and the hyperventilating, I can just imagine that's not a very pretty picture to see. Yeah, but you told me, it's like, listen, just tell me it's going to be okay. If I want a hug, give me one. If I want you to sit with me or listen, I don't want to be alone now, I'll come sit with you a bit. And if I want to talk, I'll talk. If I don't, I don't. And you still still do that. You sometimes come and you're like, um, I'm not feeling well. Can I sit with you? But That's really important because I think that helps me a lot with either avoiding panic attacks or coming down from them a little bit easier. I think this is also why we have the cone words, because when I say I have anxiety, what you do, what I like the most is you continue, you know, you acknowledge what I've said, but then you continue as if nothing is happening. Like we, we go on making food, we go on talking about the day. And that helps me a lot because sometimes when you're at that edge of getting the panic attack and the other person also goes like, oh, what are we supposed to do? You know, it kind of almost solidifies and verifies that, oh, you are having a panic attack. This is happening. It is real. But if you can just move through the the routine it sometimes helps you get back into a better space thinking no it's not as bad as i'm feeling it to be and then when i get to the more panicked phase like you know it helps me i need to get out i need to be outside in the open air i need to walk up and down i have some exercises i can do but again this is everything we talk about before and when i'm not having a panic attack so the communication part is absolutely key I think the other communication part, if you have children, is also very key. Like when Lily asks, like, oh, where's mommy going? I was like, mommy's going to exercise a bit outside alone. She's doing alone mommy exercises. And Lily is like, oh, mommy's exercising. Oh, that's good. Let me go draw, you know? Having any points of contention, I think, in a house during a panic attack yeah. aggravates the situation where your breaking of the cycle is me and you continually talking or me telling you stories about what happened today at work and so forth. Life is normal. Everything is okay. Let's move on. Where other people might have different um, cycle breakers. So the last point for today is really that I want to confirm it may be different for the listeners, but I think I've made an uneasy piece with it. This is who I am. It's part of my DNA. And it doesn't really matter how well you manage it. There is a good chance you may one time or another have a relapse and you're going to have a panic attack. And one of the worst parts of a panic attack for me is actually the panic hangover. So that is like the two or three days post panic attack. And just, again, the guilt that comes with it. And I think that got worse for me 
once we had Lily and once she reached an age where she's kind of understanding what's going on and she's reading the cues, you feel so bad, one, that it happened again, because now you're thinking, what did I do wrong? Where's the signs I read incorrectly? Blah, 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 blah. Then you feel bad because that panic hangover, you're so useless. You are so exhausted. You're so fatigued. All you can think about is sleeping. You're having migraines. Sometimes you're nauseous. You still have like the aftershocks of shaking and not feeling well. Sometimes you get really, really depressed. It's really difficult to function. What is your take on it or advice when these things happen? Because if you have panic disorder, there's a good chance it will happen one time or the other. How do you deal with that as in a co-parenting situation when you see your child witnessing this? It's not just the panic attack, it's the panic hangover that comes after. Hangover is such a very well uh, description on, of what happens. Any one of us that's ever experienced the good 31st of December knows the first is not your best day. And you kind of just want to stay in bed. You're worried about what did you do the evening before? What did people see you do? What did your family, was your family and friends there? Is your spouse angry at you? Did you dance on a table? Or in this case, hide under a table? <laughs> <laughs> it's such an amazing description for it. And the biggest thing here is life goes on. Find a routine. And when it happens, you fall into the routine. You go fetch a pizza or you bake or whatever you like to do when you're alone, because in a week's time, I'm going away on a business trip again. And then you have two or three days alone with the kids. Balance in your household is so important where the one person doesn't feel they do more than the other one. And you might not be traveling so much anymore, but you used to. And then we had a balance in traveling. Now we have a balance in this. Where some days, like one week in a year, you've got a, as you said, a hangover and I travel or I go away for work or I go hunting for a week. And then you have the kids and you do the household. It's exactly the same principle. Just because it was a panic attack doesn't change the level of um, responsibility that's on the other person. Thank you so much for coming on to the Figgy podcast. If our guests want to find you or connect with you on social media where can they find you where can they go and of course i'll also put the links to that in the description i think you gave such a glowing review in the beginning of the show i can't add much to that but we are um, on linkedin and we have a website biorugged.com oh. i really appreciate your time and thank you figgy listeners for being here tuning in i will see you again in the next episode. But until then, please remember that everyone deserves to celebrate the goddess within. Have a great week. Until next time. Ciao. Thank you for listening to the My Figgy Life podcast. Please consider subscribing to be notified of new episodes.